there, welcome to the Freudcast. You find us out and about for this episode in East London on Broadway Market to be specific. Uh, a thriving retail street, one of many in London that's still doing well actually despite the uh, Covid crisis. And one of the reasons for that is because of the success of pop-ups. And one of the reasons for the success of pop-ups is the company Appear Here. I won't explain what they do because with me sitting outside Hamano's coffee shop on Broadway Market is its founder, Ross Bailey. Ross, good to see you. For those who aren't familiar with Appear Here, explain how it works. So the way of thinking about Appear Here is essentially like Airbnb. On one side, you've got thousands of spaces across the world in different cities. And on the other side, you've got entrepreneurs, creatives, people with ideas that want to book those spaces like they would book a hotel room literally by the day, week or month. Uh, And they book them, pay for them online, sign the contracts online and then appear and disappear when they want and, and essentially bring their ideas to life. And the coffee shop we're sitting outside right now is one of those stores. Yeah, exactly. The coffee shop here is by two Colombian brothers that set up a little coffee shop outside of London. Um, They started with a market stall, actually an old street station, and they opened up a shop somewhere else, and they've done so well and sort of exceeded their own expectations over the last few months during this sort of wild time that they've actually opened up this store, which is now a permanent store in Broadway Market, and they're opening up another store five minutes down the road. And we are talking literally on the cusp of London going into tier two lockdown whatever that means but fortunately we can sit outside it's a lovely day here in east london doesn't really feel like autumn right now does it there's a bit of a buzz around people walking their dogs and there you go on cue (laughs) and having coffee uh it feels like i mean look normal who knows what normal is at the moment uh, at the time of recording but it feels like there is a bit of a buzz and, and you're contributing to that by allowing people to open these kind of places up yeah i think that what you're seeing now is you've got to this point where I think people are accepting that this might go on for a while. I think that therefore people are moving on with their dreams. Um, They're moving on with their ideas. They're moving on with planning and getting stuff going. And I think what we've actually seen is this sort of contrarian story happening at the same time, which is that in neighbourhoods, you're seeing them thriving. And look, this neighbourhood we're in now on a Friday, to be frank, it was was very quiet midweek. Uh, It was a thriving street at the weekends and successful enough at the weekends that the stores here did very well. But we're on a Friday now and this is bigger footfall and more people walking down it than would have been prior to this pandemic. So I think that you've got this interesting hollowing out of the city, but you've actually got this sort of renaissance happening of the local high street and the neighbourhood, which prior to this was already happening, right? We were seeing this trend for about 18 months before this pandemic and we were seeing these places getting more and more successful at weekends as people stayed in their areas um, really for the time when they wanted to hang out and, and experience stuff and relax. But, but that's accelerated to such a pace now that, you know, this feels like it could be a street in Soho, um, yet we're in the middle of East London. We will look back in a minute at where Appear Here started and your own entrepreneurial story. And the word entrepreneur is much overused, but it, it is genuinely the case uh, in your story, Ross. But let's just dwell a, a little bit upon that, about, upon the sort of the changing high streets, wherever it may be in London, Paris, New York. That's where Appear Here operates in o- other places. Do you think the pandemic has accelerated change, has localised the retail experience for people more? Well, you know, Matt, when I think about the beginning of this pandemic and literally walking through London and seeing streets with every shuttered shop and the borders down, suddenly it was like this realisation 
and look, we I, I knew this because it's the business we're in, but still it hit home in a new level where every single space that was shut, I suddenly recognised that this was someone's dream or someone, a little restaurant that at some point had been the spark of an idea that someone had decided to go for and now they employed people and this little empty spa- this space now, um, you know, was the thing that sent maybe their kids to school or paid for their family or whatever it was and suddenly when you saw those shutters down you realise how these spaces are so much more than shops but they're, they're people's livelihoods right and I think that realisation over lockdown was was really big for me I think the second thing was how important streets are to us you know I was like many people questioning do I even want to live in London as this stuff continued and then as it came back and as you see streets like this today you're like of course I do where else would I want to live but it just shows you how streets and shops they're sort of the the streets are what bind the fabric of our cities together and I I really believe in that more than more than ever Um, so actually I've gone from this place where at the beginning of the pandemic was a bit like oh god this is miserable look at all these dreams that have been paused to now real optimism and this view that you know what prices are being reset um, especially in the centre of town and, and they needed to be reset most streets were boring you're seeing creative ideas coming out like never before you know we've got a huge proportion of the UK workforce that up until the end of this month has been employed by the government and as the furlough scheme comes to an end we're going to see huge amounts of young creative people sadly unemployed and I think that when you look at these spaces that we see on the streets there's this complete opportunity to reinvent stuff and to do things that are creative do you think then that shopping streets retail streets whatever you want to call them in the uk in particular are evolving to be more service-based i mean there's there's plenty of stuff previously on streets that you think actually i can just get that delivered to the house now so do you think those businesses that are moving into retail premises are starting to have to be clever about what they offer they offer stuff that you can't get online you can't get delivered to to the house Yeah, I think there's two things there. I think one is we can buy more than we've ever been able to buy and we've got so much choice. And I've got friends that run very successful technology companies and over the pandemic they saw their sales increase by three times, right? They got tremendous growth in lockdown. The worrying thing that some of them have found is that when the world reopened, their sales went back to pre-pandemic levels. And a lot of these companies have always had the thesis, right, that if they attract people and they use this sort of frictionless um, online website that people won't go out and do it the way they previously did and there we were we all had to do it and yet people still decide they wanted to go out so i think that we're in this funny place where we've got more that we can buy than ever before more choice but what that actually means sometimes is that we want more selection we want more editorial we want more curation i don't know what book i want to read next so i want to go into the bookshop and this bookshop's packed opposite us because i want the guy who runs it who's fantastic to tell me hey this is the book that's going on right now this is what you need to buy um, the same with why do I go to a really cool little men's independent menswear shop because the guy running it's cooler than I am and he's going to tell me no <laughs> I know it's tough but this is a particularly cool menswear shop um, but and, and he'll tell me what I should uh, should buy and I think that that's one that's really important I think the second thing is that we realise that what we all crave, especially during a moment like this, is human interaction. And when that's taken away from us, I think we realise it any more, even more. And you look at a streetwear store or you look at a surfing shop or you look at a skateboarding store and you realise that that isn't 
people aren't going there to buy stuff, right? They're going there to congregate, to hang out, to, to meet people like them. And that, that store represents who they are and, and, and that gathering place. Yeah, like it is here. I mean, I'll always gravitate towards a place that has a bench out the, out the front just so you can yeah. sit down, get a coffee and wait there. And, you know, these days it feels safer being outside. Um, are you finding that this is the same trend, not just across the UK, but in other countries where a peer here works? Like I mentioned before, Paris, New York, for yeah. example. Well, Paris, we, I mean, Paris has been doing phenomenally well. And actually, even during the, as we came out of COVID about a few weeks ago, before they went into their second lockdown, Paris for us was actually ahead of where it was pre-pandemic. Whereas London was, you know, a little bit below, but growing very quickly. New York, on the other hand, you know, I think there's a lot going on politically in a lot of different areas. We've seen that really pause. And actually, we've seen the real pause on Manhattan, but a real, you know, as you'd imagine, um, Brooklyn's going crazy. Um, but I think that actually, you know, I've always said that London and Paris, even more so, but London, there's so much creativity. There's so much opportunity. There's so many brand new restaurants and um, little tiny bars opening and and run by independence and and that's what brings this sort of excitement to the city whereas the annoying thing with new york is over the last few years to me new york has been actually quite stale like i love new york but unless you're in brooklyn there's no real new shops and there and if there are any you know they're much bigger stores and i think that this is going to bring a real opportunity with new york because prices were already too high there was already you know ridiculous vacancy in manhattan um I think that gives an opportunity for that to really change. And, and the same here in London, you know, artists and certain subsets of society and communities that fundamentally make a place interesting, um, often the moment that it becomes gentrified or the big stores move in, that stuff disappears. And I think what we've seen with the collapse of the mall business over the last few years, but certainly over the last few months, the sort of stock prices where they've been, is that this idea of just building stuff to consume with no personality and no authenticity might look great in the short term, but long term hasn't held up. Yet streets like this, where there's a mixture and there's an over, uh, there's an over, uh, what reliance? There's an over reliance. There's an over distribution of independence of creatives of still that stuff. It thrives, and I think that as a landlord in particular, they need to now be thinking if they're looking at a street or they're looking at their development, how do we not move those communities on, but how do we make them stay? And I think that that realisation has come out of this, and I think that would be a big optimistic change going forward. Do you think there are bigger themes at play here, one of them being the move away from the homogenisation of shopping experiences, whether you are in New York, London, Paris or anywhere else? seeing those same brands on those same streets that's one thing the other being towards more sustainable consumption you mentioned malls which are literally there to churn out stuff and have people consume it with those two things in mind moving away from homogenization moving towards sustainable consumption do you think that we're going to see more vibrancy on on shopping streets yeah and look i think there's a big question around sustainable stuff especially when it comes to fashion and and retail it's, it's such a difficult solution and and the more you look at it you realize that some of the most sustainable ways to to make retail work is about local it's about things being made things being independent not just consuming crap but buying things that you really care about and the great thing with what we're seeing recently with makers and independents is they're making stuff in east london or they're making stuff in peckham or wherever they happen to be based and you're seeing a real resurgence of things like woodworking and, and real craft and in a way, you know, in many ways that is so sustainable because 
they're doing it locally and 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 when you look at the whole supply chain you know independence and low and that locality is what makes things often sustainable it's you know the idea of mass retail and multiple stores being everywhere is is a relatively modern invention um and I think that 100% is changing. And I think as consumers, you're right, as we walk down the street and it just feels like we're there to buy, you feel guilty. Whereas if you can do it in the right way, um, you know, it goes back to being a joyful experience. I know there are many, many appear here examples that you're proud of, but just tell us a few of your favourites. Uh, Hermano's obviously being one of them, considering we're sat here. Hermano's, I love the guts, right, during this time to start to rapidly expand. I think good for them. Um, some ideas I really love recently, I love... Um, I think what's really interesting during this time is things like Instagram um, have allowed everyone to have quite a high aesthetic or to see things that they want and, and also to create this world of niches. There's a lot of small random things that you're like, there's no way this could be successful. And then they get huge followings. They'll have hundreds of thousands of followers and their little store in the middle of nowhere would do so well. And one person that I love um, was a girl that started a business called Grain and Knot and she left her job in advertising and she was finding it all very stressful and she started woodworking for sort of like her own mental health and sanity and like as a work form of meditation and now she's got this woodworking shop and she makes you know I tried to buy a, 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 a chopping board a few weeks ago and they're fully booked like she they're just all gone and you're Don't like you know who you are I mean you gave yeah, her the I shop I, try, I know it didn't work but <laughs> So, you know, she's done incredibly well. And, like, you suddenly look at a wooden spoon and a chopping board and you're like, how can I, how have you made this, you know, monogenous, if that's the right word, like, plain product? Monotonous. That's the word. Yeah, well done. Um, (laughs) Not only do I not have qualifications, I'm dyslexic. We'll get on to that. We'll get on to that. But you look at that and you go, well, actually... Um, how have you made this me want this in such a way and so I love her story because it's simple it's such a niche yet she's got such a following I love a brand that we've worked with called Conservatory Archives I mean they make plants but she takes a shop and every one of her stores is filled with so many plants if you ever look at it online or on Instagram it's honestly one of the most beautiful stores and whether I show my best mate my mum my grandma this store they are like wow this is stunning Um, I think about uh, a brand I'm obsessed with at the moment is a girl that launched a shop with us because she was in publishing and she realized that there were no children's books with characters of any ethnicity so she created a store called round table books in brixton and she's like getting more fulfilled than she's ever been doing anything and she'll have some kids that go to her store every day after school to read the books because they're books with people that look like them and there's so many people we live in this world where everyone's talking and complaining and you know frustrated by stuff and it always inspires me when you have people that channel that into actually doing stuff and I think we've all got the ability to participate and to tell our own story and what we're trying to do at Appear Here is give people access and when you see those stories you know my probably favourite one is a guy called Imad Syrian refugee moved to London was a restaurateur you know was miserable here but felt huge guilt because he got here he was safe his family had lived but suddenly um you know he's not running his restaurants and he was working answering the phone in like a car um you know fitters or dealership or something and he was like you know just bored of life and you realize that you know once you're safe right we all want that purpose and that thing that we're passionate about so he launches a, a restaurant with us and we funded him and backed him and supported him and um he sold out every sitting for six weeks you know people like the daily mail wrote articles on him talking about the 
you know, if only there were more like him, right? Like, you know, it was just a positive story. And then he ended up cooking for at Kensington Palace for the Royals. He's created this huge following. You know, he's become one of London's, I think Evening Standard's most 100,000 influential people. He um, now has a restaurant opening up in Covent Garden. He's just this tremendous success story because one day he went, you know what, I, yeah, I will do that restaurant. I will make it happen. And, and that's what gets me up in the morning. It's those sort of, that sort of just do it entrepreneurial attitude. And I think entrepreneurs in many ways it's a word I used to hate, but I think that it, they are the sort of new athletes, but it doesn't mean, you know, driving a Rolls Royce or going on a plane. To me, entrepreneurialism is someone who had something in their head and took the act of making it happen and bringing it to life. Which is exactly you. You've just described yourself. So let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to the 16-year-old Ross, because that's when you left school, right? At 16? Yeah. Why? Why did you leave yeah. at 16? Um... I wasn't very bright. No, I, I actually did. That's a, clearly I, not true. No, I mean, come I on. I did all right in my GCSE. So I had started, it's a really embarrassing story, that I started, um, I convinced a guy near where I lived to rent their nightclub. So he agreed that I could rent his nightclub, and I took the quietest day and decided that we'd do nights that for under 18s. Where was this? Um, it was about half an hour away from where I lived in Milton Keynes, which actually from, which is, you know, as you can imagine, doesn't have much going on. Um, but what was quite good with Milton Keynes, actually, is it's a, it's a grid layout. Good roundabouts. Yeah, it's good roundabouts and a grid layout. So you've actually got about 10 schools that all have one centre of activity. So I rented a club in the centre of activity, got the coolest kids in each of the schools, and we would sell a thousand tickets and it was, you know, before it even launched, it was, you know, have sparklers on non-alcoholic champagne, which is essentially sparkling grape juice. Um, and it was phenomenal. It actually did really well. So then I was sort of sat in business studies classes, like being taught what, you know, a P&L was or really sort of things I just found a bit boring. And I'm there like afterwards taking a call and we're figuring out where our fifth location is going to be. And I was like, do you know what? Maybe I'm learning more doing it this other way. And then I was always the person that was friends with kids older than me. So I had a lot of friends that were already at uni and they were having the time of their life. And I was having the time of my life going and joining them at the weekends. But I was like, do I want to do this for the next four years? And, and I sort of, you know, I've got basically ADHD and I'm very impatient. And I decided that I, I would go and do that, which worked for me at the time and, and look a few years later I deeply regretted it I was like, oh my god I should have gone to really uni. really not now though no not now but I don't know I think you always sort of go well, what would it have been like but I so I sort of went for oh god I should have gone to uni and I applied for like every sort of London university and obviously didn't get into any um, and then I managed to I'd been doing my own stuff in London I moved here when I was about 17 and I um, managed to get into an advertising school which was called the School of Communication Arts and everyone from John Hegarty to Graham Fink to Rory Sutherland, these really incredible people um, had been part of it. And it had been shut for years, and this ex-student was relaunching it. And I turned up at an old school uh, in the middle of nowhere, and there was sort of zero deaths, nothing going on. They were like, we're going to do this for the first time. And it was for postgraduates, so once you'd graduated. So anyway, long story short, I get into it, and I decided that if I did that, it would convince myself that I could have done uni and it was a choice, not that I can. So I did that for six months and it was amazing. Um, and it was this wacky guy called Mark Evans who wears multicolored trousers, goes to work on a Segway and every morning would stand on the stage and sing out loud, we sell or we die. And his view was that you can be an artist or a creative or in advertising, but in the end, whatever you do, 
it needs to connect to people it needs to sell um and it was honestly the most amazing experience you mentioned you're dyslexic you're gen- genuinely dyslexic no i'm the pretend kind <laughs> <laughs> well no but I, i'm saying that i'm sa- actually, actually saying that as a father of a dyslexic daughter but, but you know some people say oh i'm a bit i'm a bit dyslexic well are you really dyslexic no, so or are you I just saying that i didn't find out until actually after my gcse's which I was always a bit gutted about because i was like oh, i could have got that extra 15 minutes or whatever it was and my dad had always said like you know he was like you don't get an extra 15 minutes in life um but um but yeah i mean you know i really struggled obviously with spelling i I struggle with words and getting them in the right place but i think and i struggle with the way things look so i have to print half my stuff off like an old man um and see it on paper versus on the screen and um you know or I, i find it hard to write articles sometimes um and I think if you're dyslexic, you often you often also struggle with concentration because those things are more difficult. But I also think that everyone I've met who is dyslexic, there is also a creativity and a boredom that also means that you sort of, you know, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a negative, you know. Um, this is exactly what I'm saying to my to my nine year old now. She sees things in a different way, and we you know we talk to her and call it her superpower. It's yeah. not my, because my brother is also dyslexic, authentically so, uh, and it was treated in a different way in the '80s. Like he was, you know, he was uh, had special needs and were lumped in with the kids who genuinely were intellectually challenged. Well, I think it's probably the best thing that my dad didn't. I didn't get checked until after. Um, union. Then I was a bit late, and you know, and, uh, and checked, and, and they were like, "Yeah, you are," and whatever else. But I think that when you're, but the dyslexic kids at school, yeah, they all had to sit and have these extra special needs classes and all those things. And that was probably that might have been very beneficial. I don't know, but by not knowing that, um, you know, I'd always get told off for not concentrating and all these other things, which were probably down to that. But it meant that you. Um, I never saw anything as a negative. I was just like, oh, yeah, I'm really bad at spelling or I'm bad at confusing, getting letters the wrong way around. Um, and, and accepting it, you know, not trying to... There was a lot of people that tried to change that. I was sort of like, well, in the end, is that going to be the end of the world? Um, probably not, right? And, and the start of the Appear Here world, if I can segue nicely onto that, was in Soho, right? And it was in time with the Queen's Jubilee. So is that, is that kind of where it all began, where the idea sort of crystallised? Yeah, so I was just finishing this advertising school and, and the guy at the advertising school had this funny thing where he would set you challenges and he would go... So one week he'd say, you know, if you're one of the, the posh kids at the school, he'd go, OK, um, I'm sending you to um, a local estate today and you're going to sit in the coffee shop and you're going to watch everyone for six hours. Or he'd send you, if you weren't, to the ballet or he you know for me he went I want you randomly he was like I want you to go to sit in Tesco's this Saturday and you're going to spend an hour watching everyone and what they buy you're going to spend the second hour guessing what they might buy and you're going to spend the third hour doing the first two and following them round uh, and, and by the way and Foursquare was a thing at the time he's like you're going to check in in Foursquare every half an hour so I know you're doing it and you're like oh but and it was the most boring thing but actually it was it was amazing um and he, he had these weird, weird ways of thinking. And, and one thing he did to me is he said, every morning before you get up out of bed, you have to have three ideas before breakfast. Uh, and if not, don't come in. So you'd end up looking at everything on the street. Like you'd watch someone cross the road and go, okay, let me come up with a random idea. You'd look at, you know, the pile of rubbish that sat in front of us and go, what if there was this solution to it? Because every morning you need three ideas and you're not editing. By day four, you're like, 
I just need these three ideas so I can get out of bed or I've lost the challenge. And, you know, one day I was looking around and I was like, look, there's all these empty shops. What could you do with them? And what's funny is when you're having free ideas every day before breakfast and your mind starts thinking that way, it's always funny what's the ones you remember a month later. And this was one I just sort of couldn't shake out my head. And I thought, you know, Airbnb was taking off, Uber was taking off, collaborative consumption, this idea of one's latent capacity. If you gave people access, would it change? And then... I had this realization where it was the Queen's Diamond Jubilee and me and my friend designed these pictures of the Queen with David Bowie stripes through her face and called them Lizzie Stardust and all of our mates wanted one. And we were like, let's, um, you know, my mate wanted to set up a Shopify store, which we did and it was super easy and a few buttons, suddenly we could sell everywhere. But I wanted to do a store and he was like, why would we do a store? Let's just do online. And I was like, yeah, but we want to be like in it, right? Like London's like alive right now. Let's be part of this moment. And I mean, thank God we did because the Shopify store, we sold zero in the first week. And then the shop, the day we opened it, the Metro ran one tiny, I mean, tiniest feature. It was like, you know, smaller than my phone in the corner. Um, And by the time we opened the shop, there was a queue of people. And two days later, we get a call from Buckingham Palace and they banned the T-shirts. Even better. Which, even better. I mean, we actually were terrified because we were super young and we'd spent all our money on these T-shirts. So we shipped back a box telling them that was all of them. And the rest we sort of hid under the stairs, prohibition style. And people would come in with a phone and show us their name and show us the T-shirts. And then we'd lead them down the stairs and open the door and give them this T-shirt in a brown paper bag, literally like a drug deal. And... um, And it was amazing. I mean, we sold all of them. And what was crazy is not only do we sell all of them, but our online store suddenly started working. And it was as if because we had this real place, because people were talking about it, sharing it, it was, you know, this was very early social media, but everyone was starting to share it. People were talking about these banned T-shirts they've got hold of. And, you know, we'd be in a club during that week and you'd see a group of people all wearing one of these T-shirts. Saw one, you know, we saw a close-up during the Olympic Games of people wearing them. So it became like this real thing. And what was really interesting to me was twofold. One was the online store was super easy. But two, shops that people have been doing since like the beginning of time was really difficult. You couldn't do it. And I met with a landlord and I begged and begged and begged and begged. And they were like, you can't do this. And I couldn't believe that you couldn't just rent a shop for a week. I mean, it was complete naivety now that I understand covenant and finance and how that worked. Um, But it was like well no wonder there are all these empty shops if it's this difficult um, and I realised that retail had been set up for businesses of a certain scale and I guess the view was if we make this easy if, we, if it was as simple as my naivety says would more people want to be part of this they, you know, when Shopify started there was something like 50,000 websites online for commerce and the view was that this would never be a big business because there was never going to be enough retailers. And now they've got over a million paying customers and they're what? Uh, you know, uh, I think their market cap's above 60, 70 billion or something. And you look at them and you go, why was that? Because they made it possible that anyone could tell their story and participate. And my view was that you know, there are certain things like malls and different things that have been a, a journey in time and they've been an adaption and a, and a change of stuff. But fundamentally, we have gone to streets like this since the ancient Greeks when they had like the agoras and we've gathered as humans and we've interacted. And even today, when we're locked down, the fact that we all want to connect and I cannot, you know, 
the fact that there is a deadly virus going on and we're sat having a coffee and everyone's queuing and people are going in to get their bread and whatever, you know, and the shops opposite us is because fundamentally there is something in us as humans that wants to connect and be social. So my view was, hang on a minute, online is a thing, it's 100% a thing, but this shop has made a difference and therefore... You know, at the time, everyone's like online versus offline. My view was commerce will be everywhere and these two things will collide. And the second thing was that it's bloody full of friction. It's horrible experience. Um, and if we could change that, actually, this view of retail dying could be different. And there could be a contrarian view here, which is that, you know, what if a space could be anything? And retail to me isn't about selling. It's about the one space where you can do something that connects to a human, right? Residential's where you live, office is where you work, and retail, when you think about it, whether it's a restaurant, a coffee shop, a, a re- you know, anything, a gallery, what it is is it's the space on the ground where we as humans interact, and it's where, you know, fundamentally our memories, everything is created in, in a very sort of cheesy way, but I think it is. I don't, I don't think it's cheesy. I think you're genuinely passionate about it, but I, I'm going to finish off by asking about where that drive, where that passion comes from, because I doubt you set out to be sort of, you know, the shopkeeper of shopkeepers. You're, you're passionate about the story, about the human interaction, the fundamentals of the experience. Is that what, is that what keeps you driving with it? I think on a personal level, I never knew what I wanted to be. And I think one of the things that's great about anything sort of entrepreneurial is you look at, you know, I look at people like, you know, someone like, I don't know, uh, Terence Conrad. And you look at how he went from restaurants to uh, shops to, you know, being hugely innovative for his time to, you know, design to all these different elements to writing books. And you think, you know, there's some kind of freedom there that's quite exciting. Or you look at Tom Ford from being a businessman with Gucci and a creative director to being an architect to doing movies right like there's something there where the the entrepreneurial spirit that you can do anything and I think that what drives me on a personal level is when you see something you go this doesn't seem to make sense why is it that way and when you ask people why it's that way when they don't answer why but they answer the logical reason of what they've been taught so when you're like well why is the 10-year lease a thing and and no one can really explain? Or why is it that contracts are signed that way? Or why is it, you know, and there's no fundamental. You go, hang on a minute, this is quite exciting. Like, this could be rethought. And whether it's that or something else, I think the question is, what is there in the world that uh, has the chance to be reinvented? And I think often they're the things that people have forgotten, that day one mentality, which is, you know, retail does not exist for us to buy something it shouldn't be priced per square foot of how much we consume retail really exists because we want to interact and we want to gather and all those things and there are other industries like that so I think whatever it is it's about the idea of a reinvention the idea of where there's things where there's just too much friction like why what there are certain things that are so difficult why are they that difficult and on the flip side I think what drives me is access so Real estate is something, especially retail, is something that was very unaccessible, which means that there is a huge amount of people that just couldn't do something. So if you can give more access and level the playing field and reduce friction, um, you know, I think that's what excites me. And, and I'm just passionate about people with ideas. I, I love if someone sits down and they're just talking about something they love. To me, that's infectious, you know. And I'm lucky that I'm not in retail or real estate. I, I, we're in the business where like people were producing ideas the whole time and they're discussing you know 
what they're going to do, whether it's a guy taking a shop to play piano or whether it's, you know, Imad or whatever else. It just so happens that as we're finishing talking there, someone is setting up a, a well, a really old retail form in a market stall and doing it really noisily. So it's a good place to end. Ross, thanks so much for chatting to me for the Freudcast. Cheers, mate. Thank you, Matt. Uh, thanks to you for listening as well. You can keep up to date with uh, the Freudcast and what else is going on at Freud's in general by following us on LinkedIn and Instagram as well. For now, thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>